I was a jerk. I was known for being drunk every weekend, making racist statements, disrespectful to my classmates and teachers, bullying kids that were different than me, disobedient to my parents, basically having a complete and utter disregard for other people and their feelings. So you can imagine my terror in June of 2006 when we visited Crossway Church for the first time. So my wife and I and our one-and-a-half-year-old son, QJ, at the time, uh, we made the difficult decision that we were going to leave our previous church, and we had already decided that we were going to make Crossway our new home. And during the first worship set, the first round of songs they're singing, I spotted this guy, John, from my high school playing guitar. Now, John was part of a small group of students at LS that we called the Freaks. And they were frequently our targets for vile disrespect. John was frequently a target of my disrespect. He endured many insults from my mouth. And his friends had even experienced violence against them from the hands of my friends. My thought was, what will happen if he sees me? Right? Will he turn away in, in revulsion? Will he ignore me? Would he try to pay me back for all the grief I caused, caused him and jump me in the parking lot? I decided not to find out. I figured I'll just dodge him. Right? So, so those first few Sundays when we were visiting, if I saw him walking out that door, I would, I would walk out that door. If I saw him over in this area, I would just make sure that I stayed over in this area. And I figured that he probably even found out that I was attending Crossway. And, and he was probably avoiding me just as much as I was avoiding him. But it was actually the opposite. When he found, that, found out that we had been attending there, he snuck up behind me one Sunday after the service, and I turned around, and there he stood. Right? I, we hadn't seen each other in 18 years at that point. I had, not, I had not seen him. I had not communicated with him. We were not on social media talking about or to each other or anything. But I turned around, he looked at me, he had this huge smile on his face, and he said, Hey, Quay, it's so good to see a familiar face here at church. Well, not knowing how to respond, I said, John, you don't have to lie to me. I know it's not good to see me. He looked astonished. And he said, What do you mean? Of course it is. I said, John, no, it's not. I said, I'm sure bringing, I'm sure seeing me brings back all these memories, all these bad memories. Like, I, I'm certain that I made your life miserable. I'm certain the things that I said to you meant, meant you would go home, you know, sad and, and depressed and embarrassed. And I'm going to ask you, but I wouldn't blame you if you couldn't do it. Please forgive me for being a jerk. He looked me squarely in the eye and he said something I'll never forget. Quay, of course I forgive you. I don't care about who you were. I care about who you are. That's an amazing statement. I don't care about who you were. I care about who you are. There is so much truth in that little statement. What John said that Sunday is at the core of what we're going to examine these next few days. See, I had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ at the age of 25, so I was not who I was in 1988. 
But John had also come to saving faith in Christ. So he wasn't who he was either. In reality, now as believers, neither of us are who we were. We now are who we are. And who we are is inside of us. Right? So often we forget about that because we see what's on the outside. Our clothes, the words that come out of our mouths, what we do every day, all of that stuff is important, but it's not who we are. It's a reflection of what's on the inside. It's evidence of what's going on in the inside. It is rooted in the self. That's who we are. This week, we're going to take a look at what happens to the self when it meets Jesus. Tonight, we're going to focus on identity, but the next five messages will zero in on the characteristics that were were a part of who we were and what it should look like now as who we are. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about ourselves and how the changes we see on the outside begin with the change on the inside. And that change is rooted in our union with Christ. With that in mind, please turn with me to Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. We will have it up for you, too. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17 from the ESV. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father, we do ask that you will meet us here tonight, that you will work in our hearts. We pray that you will reveal 
our sin to us, that we will be convicted and that we will repent and put our trust in our sanctification and the changes that you are making. We do pray that if there's anybody here who has never put their faith in Christ, that tonight will be the night that they will wait no longer. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and wisdom to understand. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, a little background here. Colossae was a small agricultural town about 100 miles from Ephesus. Now, I want to make sure you understand, because it, it can be a little confusing. Colossae, the people are known as the Colossians. Uh, in Ephesus, the people are known as Ephesians. So I just want to make sure you're clear of that. So, so when I talk about Colossae, it's the name of the town, but the Colossians are the people who live there. When I talk about Ephesus, the people who live there are the Ephesians, and Paul wrote letters to both of them. So here's what seems to have happened. The Apostle Paul was preaching and teaching in Ephesus for three years. And during that time, a man named Epaphras from Colossae, made the 100-mile journey to hear Paul speak. And Epaphras heard the gospel, put his faith in Christ, and traveled back to Colossae to share the good news with his fellow townsmen. It seems many there also believed, and they started a church. But this church started to run into problems with false teaching. Right? This is known as the Colossian heresy. Someone or possibly multiple people were telling the Colossians that their faith in Jesus was insufficient for, and that they needed more, right? These false teachers were encouraging the Colossians to stop eating certain foods, to avoid touching certain things, and to practice certain religious rituals like worshiping angels in order to be more holy, to feel more spiritual. And these Colossians, so young in their faith, being taught by Epaphras, who was also young in his faith, they were falling for these deceptions. See, see, there are two ways to be young as a Christian, by age and by conversion, right? So let's say you grew up in the church and you believe that you put your faith in Jesus at the age of six and now you're 13. Yes, you've been a Christian for seven years, but you haven't really faced the hardships of life yet. But let's say you're old, like 30 Right? And you hear the gospel and you believe. And at the age of 31, you may be much older than the 13-year-old, but you haven't been in the faith long enough for all the battles that are to come. In both cases, you are young in the faith. Now think about this. Someone comes along who's pretty smart, right? And he says, why do you believe all that Jesus stuff? You don't need Jesus to be a good person. That's just the church trying to manipulate you. For both the young person and the young believer, this becomes very dangerous. It's easy to seduce you into false teaching because you're still so young. When the Colossians first heard the truth of the gospel, they believed, but now they're being tempted to stray from sound doctrine because these false teachers were basically, basically saying, who are you? Right? You think you're spiritual? Do you feel spiritual? Do you feel like a Christian? Right? These questions began tempting these young believers, and they probably began asking, am I really a Christian? And if not, who am I? Epaphras, worried about his congregation falling for these lies, right? And he's still young in his face. He travels to Rome because Paul's in prison in Rome. And he travels there to, to get some advice. And while there, Epaphras ended up being in prison too. So Paul wrote this letter, which was delivered by two other uh, 
disciples who came back to Colossae to try to clear up these problems and to rebuke the false teachers. So in this letter to these new Christians in, in, in the Colossians, Paul is going straight to the issue. Even though these false teachers are saying that they need more of something, Paul is emphasizing that everything they need is in Jesus Christ. The false teachers are asking the Colossians, who are you? So Paul is telling them who they are. And this becomes a message for us too. Since the fullness of Christ dwells in you, live as your new self. Since the fullness of Christ dwells in you, live as your new self. And we'll take a look at this through the lens of Colossians 3, through three points. Number one, who are you? Number two, the new self. Number three, put off, put on. Who are you? The new self, put off, put on. So let's take a look at our first point. Who are you? In 1978, a band called The Who put out a song called Who Are You? That indeed was the song that began our our night together. Now, a little research on this song reveals that Pete Townsend, the lead guitarist of the band, was upset at his new manager after an 11-hour meeting about the future of the group. Pete Townsend felt like the manager had, had sold them out in some way, that they had sold out to fame. And the question, who are you? Pete Townsend would say was aimed at his manager. Who are you? Who are you to take us down this path? Well, Pete Townsend was, was depressed, so he immediately left that meeting and started drinking at a bar with two members of a different band that he felt hadn't sold out to money and fame, which only made him feel worse. And he'll tell you that he began asking himself the question, who are you? The night ended with him too drunk to walk, laying in the streets of London, a police officer came and put out his hand, and Pete Townsend is, said that he, he, he shouted out, Who are you? But he said he wasn't shouting it out to the police officer who was trying to lift him up. He was shouting it out to God. Who are you? Now, the reason I mention all this is because identity is at the heart of the universe. Pete Townsend is a rock superstar, and in this song, he wants to know who his manager really is, who he really is. And who God really is. I mean, isn't this what is happening all the time? Who am I? Who are these people around me? And who is the one who oversees it all? Everyone in the world wants to know who they are. They want to know what their purpose is. They want to know that life has meaning. And it only has meaning if we are somebody in this world and beyond. We're only someone if it lasts for eternity. But that's why identity can get so tricky. That's why it's at the forefront of so many arguments that we hear today. If I say I am a boy trapped in a girl's body and you deny that truth, you have denied my identity. If you do not accept my attraction to people of the same sex, you have denied my orientation, my identity, and have rejected me. If you look at my skin color and say that skin color doesn't matter in eternity, you have made a judgment not just against me, but against my identity. And the list goes on. But this is not a 21st century dilemma. 
Oh, it's taken on different forms these days, but, but this has always been the question. Who am I? And this was true for the people living in Colossae 2,000 years ago in the first century, which is why Paul is writing to them. And Paul is going to be crystal clear who they are in this letter. <clears throat> in chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul highlights that Christ is all and is above all. He is the image of the invisible God. All things were created by him and through him in the universe. He holds it all together. He is the head of the body. He is preeminent, which means king of all things. And he summarizes everything in verse 19. Paul says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Keep that in mind, the fullness of God. Paul keeps going in chapter 2 by pointing out that the Colossians, by putting their faith in Jesus are now one with him. He explains that just like Jesus was raised from the dead in the resurrection, they too have been raised from death from their sins. They are no longer guilty of anything since Christ has paid it all. And again, Paul highlights this by pointing out the fullness of Christ in chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Again, Paul reminds them of the fullness of God. Paul is highlighting the fullness of God. Why is he doing that and what does it mean? All right, think about a glass of water that is full. Okay, so let's, have you ever gone to a restaurant with an overzealous waiter who is bored and he just wants to keep filling your water? Right, do you need more water, sir? And you're being nice, so you're like, sure, I'll take a little more water. You know, it's like to hear. Right? He keeps coming over. He said, hey, uh, would you like a little more water, sir? You're like, I, I barely drank it, but, but sure, fill it up. Yeah, but, but at some point, it's filled to the top, right? I'm talking all the way to the top, like, like where it's got that little hump on the top where, where it's so full. Right? And he comes over. He said, would you like a little bit more? And you would say, no, it's full. And he insists, no, you, you need more. And you insist, no, it's full. Well, he could try and deceive you, and he, he could say things like, like but, but you're so thirsty. This glass of water won't be enough, and I have more of what you need. And you say, no. And he keeps going. He says, no, you're dehydrated. There isn't enough water in here. You're thirstier than you think. If you don't get more now, you won't be satisfied. You'll be thirstier in the future. Well, two things could happen at this point. Right? You might be convinced by him and he pours water into your, into your glass, which proceeds to ruin your meal, ruin everything in your table, ruin your clothes. Or you strongly rebuke him and say, get away from me. I don't need any more water. My cup is perfectly full and I don't want you to ruin everything. See, these false teachers were telling the Colossians that they needed more than Jesus. Right? They were saying, you can't eat this or that. They're saying, you can't celebrate certain festivals. You, you have to rest the way we say you should rest. You have to deny yourself certain things to be truly holy. When Paul reminds the Colossians of the fullness of God, this is his point. There's nothing these false teachers can add. Nothing. 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 In fact, anything they add will ruin everything. In fact, if they add anything to the work of Christ, they not only add nothing, but they also negate what he has done as a free gift. Jesus times anything equals nothing. 
finally, that brings us to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul brings them to this point, talking about the fullness of God. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And then, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul is putting it all together for the Colossians. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. There is no more of God that can be added to Jesus. He is all of God. Thus, when Jesus died on the cross for their sins, there was nothing else anyone could add that could go beyond that. There is no more work that needs to be done. All the wrath of God was appeased in Christ's death, and Jesus was resurrected from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God. And Paul is saying to the Colossians, if you have put your faith in Jesus, that is you. That is who you are. That is your identity. You have died with Christ and you have been raised with him. And what does he say in verse 2? Set your minds on that. Set your mind on Jesus Christ, the all in all, the one who suffered and died, but was raised again. See, in the real world, the one that's described in the Bible, there are only two identities. You're either in Christ or you are in the world. That's what it truly narrows down to. People can say that there are a hundred genders. People can say that you need to be a good person. People can promote false gospels of exercise, food, skin color, education, money, YouTube views. The list goes on and on and on and on. The truth is your identity is either in Christ or it is not. That's why Paul says, set your mind on the things that are above. And he's telling you the same thing. Who are you? If you are a follower of Jesus, you are the blood-bought son or daughter of God the Father through the death and resurrection of God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwells in you, all of which means you are filled with the fullness of God. There is nothing else you need for your identity. There were false teachers in the first century, and there are false teachers today telling you the same thing. You need more. Tell them, all I have is Christ And he is enough. That brings us to our second point. What is the new self? What is the new self? I'm sorry. The new self. I had it as a question here, but the new self. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul is reminding the Colossians that because their true identity is in Christ, they should put off the old self and put on the new self. Now, this goes back to what that guy John from LS said to me during that first visit, one of the first visits to Crossway. I don't care about who you were. I care about who you are. That is a reference to the old self and the new self. As simple as it sounds, this is pretty deep. You are born with a self, that which is inside of you. Right? You could possibly talk about it as, a, as, a, as your personality or your nature, your psyche, your character, your, your identity. But Paul is referring to it as your self in this passage. This self is tainted by sin. 
Sin is anything that violates God's law. It comes from the first human, Adam, and his wife, Eve. They introduced sin into the world, and it's built into your DNA. That's why every person born, other than Jesus, has this sin nature built into their self. Even though it is built into us, we are responsible for it. We are sinners, and sinners sin. And this sin makes us guilty of violating God's law. And God told Adam and Eve, the wages of sin is death. Which means that our guilt for our sin will result in death. Not just physical death, but eternal death in hell. On its own, your self will never be good enough to avoid eternal death. But God rescues his people from eternal death by giving them eternal life, which comes through him giving us a new self. He doesn't fix up the old self. He gives us a new self. That's why Jesus gives this remarkable answer when Nicodemus asks, how can I see the kingdom of God? Which which basically means, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus answers, you must be born again. Now stop and let that shock you for a moment like it would have shocked Nicodemus. I think one of the most regrettable things that has happened over time is that we've lost the awe that should come from that statement. You must be born again. We laugh at Nicodemus when he says, do you mean I need to re-enter my mother's womb? But that's how every single one of us would have answered. Jesus said it this way on purpose, though. He wants Nicodemus to feel this impossibility. He wants him to feel the hopelessness. He wants him to recognize that he can't do enough. He wants Nicodemus to feel that desperation. Because Jesus isn't talking about being physically reborn. He's talking about being spiritually reborn. Jesus is is talking about the self. He's telling Nicodemus, your old self needs replaced with a new self. And just like Nicodemus was shocked by the impossibility of it all, so should we. As impossible as it would be to enter your mother's womb again, it's equally, if not more impossible, for us to create a new self inside of us. God wants us to feel the desperation deep in our soul. But look closely at verses 9 and 10 again. You have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Look at those last five words. The image of its creator. You can't create a new self, but God can. He's the creator of not only the universe and everything in it, but also the new self. He's the one who replaces the old self with the new self. In fact, if you feel the desperation of not being able to do anything, that's good evidence that the new self is in you. What Paul is saying in these two verses is that if your identity is in Christ, you already have a new self, so live like it. Stop trying to add to the fullness of Jesus Christ. Stop trying to think you have to do more to be saved. Stop trying to think that you are spiritually lacking if you don't always feel good. The fullness of Christ dwells in you, so live as your new self. The new self brings incredible changes in life. And in the lives of some, these changes are dramatic and easy to see. As I stated earlier, I was a jerk in high school. When I was 16 years old, I abandoned the faith in Jesus Christ, which my parents had raised me. 
I would not publicly, publicly pronounce that until I got to college. But at 16, I began drinking alcohol every weekend, which lasted almost a decade. I pursued all the other sins that come with consistent drunkenness. Drugs, promiscuity, vulgar language, racial bigotry, theft, violence, and the list goes on. That's the last self John would have seen when we were in high school. But one early morning in desperation after yet another foolish night, I cried out to God for freedom from drunkenness. I asked God to forgive me of my sins. I proclaimed that Jesus died for those sins and I put my faith in him. And I asked asked God to change myself. That was July 12, 1995. I share all that with you for two reasons that are really important. First, even though I asked God to change myself, he had already done it. The only reason you ask for a new self is because God has already done it. Right? This is important because because you can't make yourself be born again and you can't give your old self a new self. Right? This is extremely faith-building because we recognize that salvation is not rooted in how I feel in any given day. It's not rooted in my good work. I didn't come to this decision on my own. It's from a changed heart that I realize my sinfulness and need for Christ. If you find yourself praying for a new self, rejoice because that is evidence that God has already done it. Secondly, I wanted to share that brief story because... I've repeatedly said this as the youth group leader here at Crossway Church, that we are trying to build boring testimonies. And what, what that means is that my hope is as a youth group leader is that you never walk away from the faith. Right? My hope is that you never go off the rails, that you, that you never pursue drunkenness or sexual immorality or violence or worldly ph- philosophies. We love it when people say, I don't ever even remember not being a Christian. We love it as parents. But here's the reality, and this is why I don't say it anymore. If you've put your faith in Christ, you already have a dramatic testimony. Think about this. No one comes to saving faith in Jesus without being born again, without having their old self replaced with a new self. For some people, that happens at age 80. For some, it's age 50. For some, it's age 20. For some, it's age 12. For some, it's age six. For some, it's age two. For some, it's in the womb. God designed it this way so that he receives all the glory. The glory goes not to the one who strayed from the faith, nor does it go to the one who never strayed. The glory goes to God, the only one able to rescue and revive those dead in their sins. And if you're sitting here tonight as a believer, you already have a dramatic testimony. The fact that you believe in Jesus is a miracle. So don't take it for granted. That's what Paul is telling the Colossians. The old self is dead. Live in your new self. And that brings us to our final point. Put off, put on. Now I want you to see the progression here. Paul first reminds the Colossians that their identity is in Christ. That's who they are. Next, he encourages them to embrace the fact that their old self has been replaced by a new self. They are transformed from the inside out. And he's taking this to one final thought. Even with our new self, there are remnants of the old self that will need rooted out of our lives. This new self, though, empowered by the fullness of God, will give us the ability to change and grow.
Maybe this is a way of thinking about it. Think of your body as yourself and, and, and what you do as your clothing. In fact, this might be why Paul says it this way, to put on and to put off certain characteristics just like you would clothing items. All right, so, so think about it this way. For example, let, let's say you never take a shower, right? You're, you're dirty. Your body stinks all the time. You got BO. There's gunk rubbed into your skin. You got open wounds oozing goo all over the place. There's dandruff, dandruff and lice all over you. Someone buys you a new outfit, a new suit or a new dress. Right? You, you can put it on and wear, wear it and, and look nice for a while. It might even cover up your stench. But if you never shower and, and get cleaned up, your body and your filth will eventually take over that suit or that dress, and it's going to reek too. See, this is how the Bible would explain good works from someone who hasn't put their faith in Jesus. He or she could do good things, but it's only masking the bigger problem of what's necessary to be saved. In fact, if you do something good and give honor and praise to yourself for doing it, that's not even a good work. It's idolatry. But let's say you who are dirty and filthy, you take a shower. You know what it's like to take a good hot shower after you're filthy and dirty, right? In fact, it's not even you who take the shower, right? You're on an automatic shower machine, just like a car wash. You're not even doing anything. You're just standing on the conveyor. It scrubs you top to bottom. You feel fresh and rejuvenated. You smell good and your hair is perfectly brushed and lice-free. The machine even cleaned between your toes. And then you put the clothes back on that you were just wearing. So now instead of a dirty person putting on clean clothes, you're a clean person putting on dirty clothes. As a Christian, when we are born again, when we receive our new self, we are clean. We are a new person. Yet there is still work to be done to, to rid ourselves, to, to be rid of our old selves. Maybe God changes some of us or, or some of our clothes immediately. Maybe he gives us a new shirt, right? That's how I think of, of getting sober July 12, 1995. I just quit. So to me, it's like just giving me a new shirt. Here, put on this new shirt, Quay. But, but we still have all these other things going on, right? Dirty pants, crusty socks, beat up shoes. Then God starts to work on those other parts of us. But, but to be honest, this time he may not just give us a new pair of pants. Maybe he just wants to start scrubbing one spot while the rest of the pants are still dirty. Then maybe he will have us work on some other spot later. It may take a long time to get them clean. But each day we are, made, we are being made more and more like the creator of our new self. Paul describes the Christian life in verse 10. Put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Paul uses the word renew to explain this process. And the term renew means to be made new again. Right? The, the way Mark Dever phrased it is that we are getting newer and newer every day. So yes, we are a new self. And that new self gets newer and newer as we grow in our faith. Become more familiar with the scriptures and continue to fight sin by the power of the Spirit. The Bible is clear that someone who has been transformed by the blood of Jesus will change. That's the whole point of the new self. The new self will not want 
to live and will not live like the old self. That's why the things about ourselves that didn't bother us before now do. And we don't have to wonder uh, what this transformation will look like because Paul gives us some categories to think about concerning the old self and the new self. So take a look at what he highlights as characteristics of the old self in verse 5. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, idolatry. And then he picks it up again in verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, and lying. There are basically three categories of sin here. Sexual immorality, idolatry, and personal conflict. And I'm not going to go into detail about these because these three categories are the next three messages that you will hear at youth camp. But look and see what Paul says you should do about these categories in verse 5. Put them to death. Kill them. Now that's pretty serious language. Kill your sin. There was actually a Puritan pastor named John Owen who said, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But Paul doesn't just say what you need to put off or kill about your old self. He tells us what to put on. Take a look at verses 12 through 14. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. Again, I'm not going to go into the details about these characteristics because the, next, the last two messages of youth camp will focus on the importance of putting on love and putting on Jesus Christ. Here's the crazy thing. Both believers and unbelievers know they need to change. They know their self needs help. But the world, instead of turning to God, they turn back to their own self to try and bring about renewal. So think about this. An already damaged self tries to turn around and help itself. That's a recipe for disaster and why the world continues to publish thousands of self-help books. Tune into TV shows and podcasts. Receive counsel from gurus and other supposed experts on the self. The world keeps asking itself, who am I? Thinking that this will bring about the change and the satisfaction from life that they so desperately desire. But the power to change, to truly help yourself, is rooted in the fullness of God that dwells in you. If you have put your faith in Christ, that is your identity. Change is inevitable. You are guaranteed to continue putting off that which is not aligned with your new self and will see change and growth as you put on that which is godly. There is no longer the question, who am I? You know who you are. Now live like it. Three questions for you to think about. Number one, who are you? Who are you? Right, this is the fundamental question that, with which we started this night. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is your identity. That is who you are. Right, there is only one other identity, enemy of God. You are one or the other. The world is going to make countless arguments about how you can be your true self. How you can be authentic. How you can celebrate who you are. But I want to make it clear, unless you have put your saving faith in Jesus Christ, you are dead in your sins. It's interesting that June is called Pride Month to celebrate all things LGBTQ. 
The Bible is crystal clear that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride in any identity is sin and God will oppose you both in this life and the next. You do not want to be in opposition to God for eternity. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, tonight is the night. It starts by recognizing that you are a sinner. You have violated God's law over and over again. You can never do enough to make up for it. And so you put your faith in Jesus Christ who has lived the perfect life for you. Died your death for you and was resurrected so that you can be resurrected. You're giving your life to him who gave his life for you. This is called repentance. A turning away from your old self and putting on the new. If you have never done that before, tonight is the night. Don't wait any longer. Don't say, well, you know, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. I'll look at it in six months. I'm afraid I'm going to miss out on all these other things. Tonight is the night. Number two, what is troubling you tonight? What is troubling you? Are you worried that maybe you aren't really a Christian? Have you made a commitment to Jesus but are concerned that you don't always feel like a Christian. Here's a remarkable statement from tonight's passage that I didn't even get into. It's, it's verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That word hidden means unexposed, which, which connotes uh, protection. Your life is protected by Jesus as he sits at the right hand of the Father. And anytime I think about this, about being hidden, I think of, of the song Rock of Ages, from, which is taken from, from Exodus thirty three twenty two. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but when I, when I heard it, not the song, but, but this explanation of the word cleft. It had a huge impact that, that, I, that I couldn't forget and I wanted to share with you tonight. So the word cleft has two meanings. And this was on purpose, right? Cleft means to break, right? To break. So, so that's one way to talk about it. Jesus was cleft for us. He was broken. He was crucified, cleft, broken in half. But the word cleft also means a, a, a crevice in a rock, like it's a crevice. It's, a, it's called a cleft, right? So, so there's, there's a cleft. It's like the, the rocks come together to form a V, and there's like this little V. And if you, if you look at Exodus 33, 22, read it tonight. When Moses is going to, to God's going to give Moses a glimpse. It says Moses hides in the cleft of the rock, Right? And, and, and he can't, and God hides his eyes until, until he's passed and he just gets a glimpse through like this little crack. And, and my whole life, I've just always thought about that when, when things are going bad, when I don't feel like a Christian, when I, when I feel like I'm failing, when I feel like I'm never growing, when I feel like it's never gonna change, and you think, I'm, I'm in the cleft of the rock. He, he's not going to let me go. He's not going to let the storms hit me because I'm, 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 it's almost like I'm stuck in there. I'm protected from all sides. That's what it means to be hidden with Christ. That's why Paul's telling them this. Don't, look, you're, you need to grow. Yes, you, you need to be sanctified. Things need to change. But don't bail out now. You are hidden with Christ. 
Christ sits at the right hand of God. He's the one who protects you. You can't protect yourself, so stop thinking that somehow you're hanging on to God. Oh, I just need to hang on a little bit. No, 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 no. He's hanging on to you. Take faith in that. Have faith in that. He's hanging on to you. Rock of ages cleft for me, broken and protecting. Number three, how have you been living? If you are a follower of Jesus, your life should look different. The world should step back and wonder why you have the hope that you do. There was another quote from Mark Dever. Uh, he said, have you, have you been an advertisement for God's grace? Or does your life look like the rest of the world? How have you been living? Take these next five messages during youth camp where we will really get into what some of these categories mean that Paul has brought up to the Colossians. Take a really good look at those. Get serious about it. Get serious about killing sin. Otherwise, it's going to be killing you. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is your identity. You may have messed up a lot in the past. You may have a lot of things that... that, that bring you shame in your mind that you're, that you're fearful of. But like John said to me that day at Crossway, it doesn't matter who you were. It matters who you are. If you've never put your faith in Christ, then do it today. If you have faith in Christ, seek to change through the power of the Spirit.